Hello there and welcome back. Or welcome in. It's your first time with us. It's Downtown the Podcast. If it is your first time, where you been? It's episode 57, for goodness sakes. Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell from our Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where every day we talk to some of the most interesting people out there in the world on our unique little radio show, Downtown, which airs from 4 to 6 p.m. in the Eastern Time Zone on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3. Streaming audio is available on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Here on the podcast every week, we uh, pick a couple of our favorite conversations and share those with you. And this time around, uh, two veterans, two of the best at what they do, songwriter Jimmy Webb and character actor Paul Dooley join us on this week's program. Before we get to them, we remind you that we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Pineland Farms Dairy, Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese, Pineland Farms. Well, Jimmy Webb has been a great friend of our radio show for a number of years, came up here to do a wonderful concert for us last fall. He's off touring, as he often does in the summertime, but he's also put together a terrific new album, and it's a departure of sorts. First of all, it's an instrumental album, piano interpretations. Most notably, they are, with one notable exception, songs written by other people. Some of his favorite songwriters, and as Jimmy makes case, the second part of the Great American Songbook, people that should be considered in the same breath as the Yip Harburgs, the Cole Porters of the world. And we're talking Paul Simon, Paul McCartney, Warren Zevon, Joni Mitchell, Brian Wilson, and others whose songs are covered on Jimmy Webb's new album, Slipcover. We had a chance to talk with him about not only the making of that album, but also about his love for the state of Maine. Love the new album, and it's terrific. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Um, I had fun making it, so uh, <laughs> it's the most fun I, I've had in, in decades, really, because um, it was a totally independent, you know, uh, production. I, I, I cut the bulk of it here at, at home on my, on my Baldwin, which is just one of my favorite pianos and um i did a couple of things over in glen cove which is really close by and and uh i i i never had so much fun making a record and, and, and did i read that the the suggestion came your way from randy newman yeah that's a, a true story uh i was uh, have over with my wife laura having dinner with the newmans one night, um, they had invited us over, and uh, as as soon as I got a chance, I, I, I I'm you know going to play Randy Newman's piano, you know, <laughs> before I get out of the house. And I sat down and and played Marie and a couple of my you know my favorite things of Randy's, and he just got kind of a funny look on his face and said, you know, you should make a record. <laughs> It's just kind of a funny thing to say because I've made a dozen records, but I never made one without the vocal. Um, so uh, it kind of took me back to my uh, college days where I was playing jazz with uh, a quartet and uh, really relying on my skill at the piano and uh, much more so than... I mean, this was before singer-songwriters. 
were a phenomenon, and it was before the Beatles played the Ed Sullivan show. And, uh, you know, I did my fr- my fraternity parties, and <laughs> I played Blue Rondo a la Turk. I know that may be hard to believe, but I did <laughs> learn how to play it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of a sudden it was like, wow, I, it, it's so much fun just playing the piano, you know, and people enjoy it. And, and so rigor, I cut one track of Marie and I sent it to him and he, he liked it and Lenny Warnker heard it and he liked it as well. And, um, I ended up shopping a deal over at BMG. I, I didn't do a thing. It was really my wife. Um, and, um, they they thought it was a good. I was really surprised. Suddenly, I had a budget. I had a label. Uh, there were no strings attached. It was just me and Fred Guardino, uh, you know, over it in Glen Cove, which, as I said, the next town over. So um, we went in there and we made short work of it. I think we probably c- cut it in no more than a couple of weeks. Well, what I love about it is is the intimacy of it. And it reminds me so much of of your live shows of when you were here playing, singing, and telling stories. And uh, this album gives you the feeling of being right there in the room with you, listening to you play songs by some of your favorite writers. Well, it is. It's in my living room. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, songs, uh, you know... Uh, I mean, the, the assumption is that I'm only going to play my songs and that uh, that I think there's a kind of a more subtle uh, sort of an assumption that songwriters are only interested in their own songs mm. sometimes. Uh, and uh, there are so many songs that, I mean, they cut me. I mean, they're so deep. In my life experience, you know, people come up to me after shows and say, you know, you wrote the soundtrack to my life. You know, well, thank you very much. You know, I, I I didn't know I was doing that, but God bless you for saying that. And it, it gives me a reason for living, you know, and a reason for being here. Um, there were other people who wrote the soundtrack to my life. And uh, some of them, some of them... Uh, I would say probably that the, the the folks represented on this album are among the greatest songwriters of my generation. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other songs out there. And um, I guess there's a kind of a mission behind all this, and that is that uh, to announce, you know, the Great American Songbook Part 2. Mm. Um and and decry the idea that that all of the great stuff was written, you know, a, after the war and before Elvis Presley, you know. Absolutely, and you've you've chosen so well from you know, everybody from Paul Simon to Warren Zevon, Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder, Brian Wilson, Joni Mitchell. A couple of my favorites. One of them is a song that that I wasn't familiar with, uh, a, a Rolling Stones song, "Moonlight Mile." I, I love that. That's one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of my favorite songs. Um that's that's something that I that I uh, I think the Rolling Stones were in have been 
enormously creative. Uh, you know, there's a tendency to think of them in one kind of uh, genre, uh, but if you examine their career, you see that 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 uh, that that's just not true. And there were so many uh, uh, Ruby Tuesday and 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 a lot of like departures from R and R per se that were like kind of folk influenced and. Uh, I think that's the first time they used on a like a full, a full-on symphonic string section, and I believe the arranger was Jack Nietzsche. Um, but um, it's it's kind of glorious. Uh, mm, sure is, and it's very much a piano song. If you listen to the original record, uh, the piano's definitely he's. Uh, I don't. I, I. I couldn't tell you right offhand who it is, but I know it's one of those red-hot Nashville piano players, and um, he was. He was just all over that track, and and it must have been a series of decisions where somebody said, you know, that's really pretty. Uh, probably started with piano. Let's put strings on this, and it was just uh, the rawness and the and the and the power of uh, Jagger's voice stacked up against the silky, you know, the depth of the strings and and this great piano player who kind of plays it was a national record and um and the style is definitely slip key. A little little Floyd Kramer some, on there, right? Yeah, some some say slip note, but uh I've always heard slip key and um at first, I was going to call the album Slip Key, and then I ended up changing my mind and calling it Slip Cover. We're talking with Jimmy Webb here on Downtown. The new album is indeed called Slip Cover, uh, piano interpretations of some terrific songs, and one from a, a period that sometimes is called Baroque Rock uh, in the late 1960s. A, a great song, The Left Bank Recorded, written by Michael Brown, Pretty Ballerina. Yeah, um, it's the flip side of Walk Away, Renee. Right. And I think they, it, they I, I think it was a follow-up. I think they put it out. They flipped the record over. And, they did, yeah. Um, it's, it's you know, very much a classical, a classically influenced record. Um, it has a, it has a music box, a kind of, to me, it sounds a little bit like a German, uh, German, Baroque influenced record, um, and it sort of their moment was a was was a very was a fleeting moment in the spotlight, um, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't great, and uh, that's also my philosophy is to because I you know I I intend to continue with these albums because they're uh, I'm. I'm making a solo album next year. I mean, I'm not. I haven't stopped writing songs or anything like that. So, I mean, I want to clarify that it's it's really an addition to my repertoire. Not not. Well, I've decided I'm not going to write songs anymore. I couldn't do that. I would just as soon, you know, put a bullet through my head. Mm. So, but what's interesting, Jimmy, is in some ways the singer songwriter movement 
put people in that box and they became this sort of self-contained entity. And I, I think what you're doing through this album is to say these people deserve to be considered among the great American composers, not simply as performers. Yes, I I think that stripping. Now, this some you know this may be a little bit of white water here, but um, I think that stripping away the production. And yes, even the vocal and the lyrics, and and just hearing the composer, hearing the melody, hearing it on a piano without without any. Um, well, I mean, I I I did add a a little bit of a music box um, to the end of Pretty Ballerina, but that that was the only concession I really made to to other instrumentation. So. Um, it sort of exposes the song and and, and uh, lets it sort of stand there in a spot in a spotlight. And it's like, go ahead, examine it, listen to it, and make up uh, make an honest decision about whether you think this is as good as as something by Harold Arlen or something by uh, uh, you know Yip, uh, Yip Harburg or, or uh, you know even Cole Porter um, because. There's a mysticism about those writers that's clothed in a lot of chromaticism, and a lot of uh, orchestra, and a lot of uh, phenomenal uh, star power. You know, uh, the whole generation of these godlike, or, you know, semi deities, demigods, and goddesses uh, of song. And vocalists uh, have, you know, to, to some degree, kind of o- always overpowered the com- uh, the composer. We we talk about this as a personal project for you. You even did the cover art. Yeah, I. Well, it was a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you look at it, you can see that it's a joke. But uh, um, Mojo Magazine had asked some of us. Uh, I know Todd Rundgren was was one of the guys and uh they had asked us to do self-portraits and so some of them were just ridiculously they were like you know pictures of the inside of garbage can (laughs) (laughs) and uh i used a computer and i had a started with a very with a photograph and then i just sort of massacred the photograph with a computer program and then I color then I, I, I hand colored it and uh, I kind of uh, borrowed some postmodern art sort of uh, I guess Klein Holtz you know that kind mm-hmm. of ultra hip stuff that most people don't really rec- recognize as being art um, and so, uh, and then I sort of, um, I've got, I'm going kind of deaf in my right ear, so I, I have a big horn blowing in, in my right ear, and uh, it's it's blowing so hard that it's blowing my hair up on top of my head, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it was just one thing led to another, and uh, then I got to the point where I really love the colors, kind of a gray-blue and, and white. And I thought it would. It, the colors are great. It would make a great album cover. Why don't we just go with it? You know. And uh, now I have a, a bunch of prints 
that I had le- left over in the warehouse. I have a bunch of prints that I that I'm merchandising out of the road. <laughs> but they're all numbered. I mean, it's it's done like a you know a proper a proper work of art and everything. So it's it's kind of a farcical thing. I love it. It's the cover, and we're, and we're talking about the album, Slipcover from Jimmy Webb, wonderful new piano arrangements of uh, great songs by tremendous writers. Will you be getting up to Maine for some time this summer? I will, as always. Uh, you know, I this, this year I've planned to be up there in August and uh, the whole month, and um, um, I'm usually working on... on at least partially working on some kind of a project. I sit on the porch with my computer, and I'll, I'll, I'll be working on my solo album, fleshing out some lyrics and and playing with my sailboats and, and uh, meditating and just letting the wind blow between my ears. You know, it's basically what, what it is. We, we usually have a clam bake, and we go over to Bridgeport, and we get real Maine lobsters, and we get seaweed, which is getting kind of hard to get. Yeah. We, we used to just go pick it up off, off, off the beach, but now now you can't do that anymore <laughs> for some reason. But, uh, you know, um, Maine is a, you know, it's a, it's a thing that happened to me by accident about 20 years ago, and I ended up, I was, I was, I was in a kind of a big, you know, like a punch, the punch fest of, of a divorce. And uh, the, the kids, my children desperately needed time away from the, from, uh, from the combat. And uh, so we go up there to Keezer Lake. And uh, my daughter was four years old. And she asked me to stop smoking. She said, Daddy, I want you to stop smoking, you know, because I don't want you to die. Well, <laughs> when your four-year-old sits on your knee and looks right in your eyes and says, <laughs> you know, says something like that, you you give it some serious consideration. Yes, of because course. of the peace and the quiet and the pond, I, I stay on a pond. And uh, the blue herons and the... And the uh, the loons and and the songs of all the different birds and the, and the hummingbirds. Somehow that summer I was able to kick cigarettes. I mean, I stopped smoking, man. Uh, no program, no you know, no drugs, no nothing. I quit. Just Maine. That's enough. It's just Maine. It's just and when it, when I get out of the car in front of the cabin, that first lung full of air is like <laughs> the most precious thing in the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's the perfume of the gods. And, uh, I think that Maine has always had a powerful, uh, spiritual influence. I believe that there are spirits in the trees. I'm one of these, I'm, I'm a very, you know, like, uh, revisionist guy when it comes to religion. So I kind of go back to Native American beliefs that everything has a spirit inside. And, um, Maine is very spiritual, it's it's deeply spiritual and I can't I can't tell you exactly why but I think it has something to do with all the trees around and uh, it it gets a grip on you and and all of a sudden it's like wow it's time to go back to Maine 
It's it's hard to to be out in the woods and the waters and, and not feel that uh, that electricity, that spirit, whatever it is. You're absolutely right. Well, we uh, yeah. we hope you enjoy yourself here this summer and uh, love the album so much. Slipcover, the newest from Jimmy Webb. Uh, Jimmy, it's always a treat for us to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Rich, you are a consummate interviewer and a gentleman, and I look forward to to. Uh, at least, you know, being a, being a Mainer for a little while this summer. Oh, a, a month in the state. That, that makes you one of us officially, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Jimmy Webb talking a little Maine and his new album, Slipcover, here on Downtown the Podcast. When we come back, a, a guy who has been acting and performing for well, more than seven decades now. You know him as a talented character actor, but he's more than that. He was a stand-up comedian, one of the co-creators of The Electric Company on PBS. Our conversation with the great Paul Dooley is coming up in just a moment. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, you know, ever since 2005, Pineland Farms Dairy has been making the finest cheese in Maine. Their cheddar, Monterey Jack, Pepper Jack, Baby Swiss, Feta, and cheese curds are made with all-natural milk from Maine. You can find Pineland Farms cheese at Hannaford Supermarkets, Shaw's, Whole Foods, and other great shops throughout Maine and New England. You can also visit online for more information at pinelandfarmsdairy.com. Maine cows, Maine milk, Maine cheese, Pineland Farms. Well, our next guest on Downtown the Podcast has done it all in a lengthy career, a stand-up comedian, one of the co-creators of The Electric Company on PBS, and one of the busiest character actors in the business with memorable roles in Curb Your Enthusiasm. A ton of movies, a great appearance in Breaking Away. I mean, you name it, he has done it all in his several decades in the business. And we had a wonderful time catching up with actor Paul Dooley. You have done so much in your life. I, I don't even know where to begin, but I guess the beginning sounds like a pretty good spot. And uh, the fact that yeah. people may not be aware that uh, before you got into acting and comedy, that you were a cartoonist as a young man. That's right. It wasn't a very professional uh calling it was mostly local but i did have uh, comic strips in my college uh, humor magazine in my hometown uh, paper and my high school paper I, I was highly influenced by a cartoonist who created snuffy smith about hillbillies mm-hmm. and i'm from west virginia where they even actually have hillbillies <laughs> so uh so my strip was about uh, a couple of hillbilly guys zeke and zeb <laughs> Uh, you served in the Navy, and then you began doing stand-up along with some stage work, and, and you were quite successful as a stand-up comedian, several appearances on The Tonight Show, but not with Johnny Carson. You were on with Jack Parr. Yeah, it goes a long way back. Once a guy said to me, uh, who was the host? I said, I was on before Johnny Carson. I said, who was the host then? I said, Marconi. <laughs> <laughs> An inventor of radio. 
We love Marconi in our business, absolutely. Yeah, I did about two and a half years of stand-up, and I really hated being on the road because I had uh, kids at home, and, uh, you know, it's lonely in the hotels, and half the time the audience is hostile, you know. Uh, I always did well in uh, New York, uh, and I played the Playboy Clubs, and certain out-of-town gigs were okay, but sometimes they didn't know what the heck I was talking about. My act was a parody of Shakespeare. I'm not sure anybody knew what the parody was about. <laughs> well, but anyway, you, you decided it would be... Some point in the middle of this tour of um, stand-up uh, to join Second City, where I could right. look at another actor and see his eyes and do comedy with him, and I liked that much better. Well, and that would serve you well uh, later on in your film career and in television, uh, where you got to work with some people who who enjoyed the, the whole art of improvisation. The idea that uh, yeah. y- you go in with a blank slate, but you. And I think this is such great training for any actor because the whole idea behind it is to make your scene partner look good. Yeah, that's right. And not be afraid on stage and never be nervous. I was, uh, everybody has a little nervousness about like an opening night or something if you're on stage. But once you've been two or three years in Second City, nothing makes you scared. You'd go on any, any night and do anything. And I would hope for a mistake in the script so that I could ad lib, you know. I would love something to happen to the lines with other actors because then I could improvise. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite thing. And, of course, I worked with Christopher Guest uh, three times in a number of his movies, and I worked with Larry David, who improvises. And uh, uh, even uh, Robert Altman, who did uh, uh, five films with me, and uh, he admires improvisation, so he doesn't mind that at all. Well, you also got a big help in your career from a guy who uh, was pretty good at improv as well when he partnered up with Elaine May. Can you talk a little bit about the role of Mike Nichols in your career? Well, I was uh, went to an audition, and I was in Second City in the New York chapter at that time. And I heard once in a while that Mike and Elaine, either together or separately, had come in to look at us because they were living in New York at the time. And they're all... Their whole background is improv, and they didn't always come backstage, but they would show up often uh, with uh, different friends, not together necessarily. And so I didn't really know that they had ever seen me. I just knew once in a while they came in. But when I went to audition um, for The Odd Couple by Neil Simon, uh, which Mike uh, directed, I did the reading of uh, the normal pages you use for your audition. Then he came down and he said, you know that thing you do at Second City where you're playing an evangelist trying to sell fallout shelters door to door? (laughs) I said, uh, uh, yeah. He said, uh, that was terrific. Could you do some of that for us? I said, I don't know, Mike. It's a matter of having the questions uh, that the other actor, you know, doing it without the other lines that the other actor would give you. Because it wasn't an improv. It was something which had been created through improv and then became a standard scene. I said, it might be a little difficult to, to just do those parts without the other guy. He said, oh, that's okay, never mind. So I, uh, I say goodbye. I go out the stage door. I go out the alley. I'm going up toward the street. And it never happens. I ever hardly ever hear about this happening. But the stage manager runs after me and says, you got the job. Hmm. So uh, that, was, that was fun. And you were an understudy for Art Carney, and then you stepped in uh, when Art Carney left the production. That's right. Art at that time uh, was drinking and he was a little bit of an alcoholic. And so 
once we arrived in New York, we had a little out-of-town tour for maybe six weeks, and he, he never missed a performance. But when we got to town, he started missing like one a week or something. So by the time I really took over for him, I had appeared like in a one-time only, a night at a time, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. So I was pretty pretty familiar with the lines and everything. And then we found out that Art, uh, he would miss a lot. And then he didn't come in, and they didn't come in for three days without telling us where he was. And we were everybody's concerned about him, and they couldn't find him. And they found that he had put himself into a, a rehab situation for his drinking, but he never returned to the show after that. But we did do about a year uh, with him. But anyway, I enjoyed it very much. It's, a, it's one of his great plays, and every time somebody opens their mouth, it's a laugh. The straight lines are funny, and the punch lines are funny. We're talking with Paul Dooley here on Downtown. You also played an important role as a co-creator and writer for one of the great children's programs of all time, The Electric Company. I understand that you were responsible for summing up and coming up with some of those great names like uh, Morgan Freeman's Easy Reader, Fargo North right. Decoder. Those those were your idea. That's fantastic. Well, we they, they called in a bunch of writers, and I never knew why they called any of us, but some of them had a... Uh, a history of writing for uh, radio for ad agencies. And I had done a ton of radio with some of my partners from Second City, where at first we just improved people's regular writing on radio by putting in the final last line and making it into an ending with a joke. And we'd always make them a little bit better than they were. And after a while, we decided we're going to start charging for the creative part of it, the writing part. So we formed a little company. We did over 20 years, about a 1,000 radio commercials, some written by other people, but mostly written by us, and all coming out of improvisation. We would improvise at home and write them down and take them in and let them take a look at it, and then we'd record them. But it became like mother's milk. We could do in weeks. We could do you know 10 or 12 or 15 radio spots. And, and they were all Second City people. And did you do, am I right that you did a commercial, and I don't know if it was radio or television, with one of your heroes, Buster Keaton? That's right. And he's the reason I wanted to become an actor. Saw him on old films when I was 15, and I said, oh, my God. And in addition to his great comedy and acrobatics, he's a wonderful actor without words. And I just fell in love with his, his um, character. And about 30 years later, I did a commercial with him for uh, Ford uh, Econoline Vans played a Keystone Cop as one of the thrills of my lifetime. You mentioned your association with Robert Altman, several films with him, starting uh, with a wedding. You were also a uh, part of the experience uh, on Malta, I believe, making Popeye, yeah. where you did a, an amazing job uh, as Wimpy. What was that experience like? Well, it was like living in another, not just country, but another world. <laughs> Uh, the scene designer, who was one of the best set designs I've ever seen, created that town from scratch. There was nothing there, just a little bay. It wasn't even like a sandy beach on a bay. It was uh, all rubble kind of rocks, you know. And if you were to walk on that that area, you'd step down two steps and then up three steps and then down four steps. It was hardly possible to walk over. So it built an entire town with not facades, but four walls to these houses. You had about, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. And uh, then we got new lumber from Canada and uh, built it, and they all look brand new, except the, the, the sagging roofs, you know. 
uh, and then he aged them uh, to look 100 years old, like a whaling village uh, off New England or something. And it was just uh, really, really wonderful. And the name of that town is Sweet Haven in the comic strip. Mm. And when the actors talk about it now or even any time during and after, we never felt we lived in Malta in the little bungalows that we had. We felt we lived in Sweet Haven because we'd spend 12 hours of the day there and go back, go eat, and then go home to sleep. So we felt where we really lived was in this mythical town of Sweet Haven. <laughs> yep. It was just a great thing. There were 50 actors, and one was more talented than the other. And we got so bored with that little country where there's nothing to see or do. There's not one tree on it. It's a, a big rock. And, uh, and so we put on a variety show at some point to amuse ourselves. And it lasted four hours. That's how many people contributed and how many people had things to do. And Robin emceed it. And uh, by emceeing, he didn't just introduce people. He came out as somebody. He was Ed Sullivan, and then he came out as an evangelist, and he came out as a, uh, an Englishman and a Frenchman. And, you know, he just he emceed it by coming out about 15 times introducing acts. And, and Harry yeah, Nilsson was... Harry Nielsen was Harry part Nielsen. of that group too, right? He was there and he wrote the music and they were terrific songs. They have a kind of a childlike quality to them, which is appropriate because so many people who read the comics are, are kids. And, you know, uh, there's a song that she loves me, he 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 loves me. And all the repetitions sound almost like a kid's song. And Bluto sang, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know what I mean, I mean, I mean. And I thought they were charming, very, very charming. Uh, one of my favorite performances of yours, uh, Breaking Away, absolutely one of my top 10 movies of all time. That was just such an incredible cast. Uh, Dennis Quaid, I think, in his first role, Daniel Stern, Dennis Christopher. Uh, that had to be a wonderful experience for you. Jackie Earl Haley. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's been my calling card ever since, because when I go to an audition, which I don't do much anymore, but I go to meetings to meet with directors, and the first thing they say, even though they might be 30 years old, is, uh, God, I love that movie. <laughs> and because uh, when they were in film school, they probably saw it. That's what a lot of people have told me. So they're always complimenting me on my performance and uh, saying how much they love the movie. And I do think it was perfectly cast. And it also took an Englishman, the director, Peter Yates, and Steve Tessich, who was from Yugoslavia and came over here when he was a kid, uh, to look at America and try to see what America culture was like in the Midwest, which I thought was amazing. They really pinned it down and they're not even, not even American-born. We're talking with Paul Dooley here on Downtown. You mentioned the films you've done with Christopher Gaston, and I understand... You had a little connection to Chris through his mother. She was my agent for a while. <laughs> that helps, right? Yeah, Gene Guest. And also, I was in Death Wish for one, the original Death Wish number one for one day shooting. And Chris, partly because his mother is a casting director and an agent, he had a one day part too as a young rookie cop. And uh, then... Uh, a little before that, uh, somebody asked the Second City actors uh, in New York to do a, a thing for um, PBS, like an hour and a half show, all about all done, all uh, using uh, sketches. And uh, 
They didn't want to do it with us ad-libbing on camera. People are afraid they're wasting too much time ad-libbing on camera. And then they'll have a hard time cutting it because of the overlap. So they said, uh, take two weeks and make up anything you want to, and then we'll film it. And so uh, Chris Guest was in it for just a few minutes, but he was playing a guitar in the background. And uh, uh, he really was just in it almost like a, a, a day or two. But he was playing the guitar even then, and he had a few funny lines that he made up because the whole thing came up in improv. And that was a, it's called a Nice Place to Visit. It's about tourists, about people in New York, people who are visiting. Chance to show off those improv skills again, working with Larry David in a very memorable role on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now, what did you get from Larry David? Obviously not a script. Was it just a, a setup of the scene and what was happening? Not even a setup, just told you what the scene's about. And uh, a script is for an hour show, let's say, might be uh, 60 pages and 30 pages for a sitcom. And this was like six pages. (laughs) And it would be like a paragraph saying, uh, I remember one of them said, uh, Larry has gone to the movies with his wife and he comes home and and his in-laws, and I was his father-in-law, his in-laws are there playing... uh, playing some sort of a board game or playing something like home jeopardy or something. And, uh, I remember one of our lines was, uh, his, uh, is hard on a real word. Can you use it in the, in the game of words? <laughs> anyway, the, the scene quickly descends into whatever he wants to talk about. In a normal improv situation, you're both creating the dialogue and it can be your combined stories, but I always felt it was our job uh, with Larry David to make him look good and make him go where he wanted to go, and we just followed. Rather than leading, they have a term called follow the follower, which means nobody's leading and no one's following. You just give and take until you have something. But most of the people who work there just did stuff that would make it easier for uh, Larry to be his character. So often we were just saying, come on, Larry, you can't say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was always saying the wrong thing. And people say, is he hard to work with? Because they think his character is hard to get along with. But the truth is, he's easy to work with. It's not in his interest to insult his uh, cast. It's in his interest to keep them happy and let them enjoy themselves. So he's a very sweet guy, nice, nice guy, fun to work with. And he accepts what he gets. He doesn't go say, let's do it again and don't say that. You know, he just knows he can uh, chip away at it in editing anyway. You did a one-man show uh, last year uh, called Movie Dad because you've played a lot of dads in your career. You've played them in your real life uh, as a father of four. What do you think are those qualities about you that have made you so successful at playing fathers? I don't know. I don't know if it's a matter of having done it successfully, like beginning with the wedding and went on to breaking away. And then not too much longer after Popeye, I did 16 Candles. And maybe it's just a matter of getting typed by the part you've just been given kind of based on your age or something. Uh, but I really don't have an answer why people think I'm a, a good dad uh, I guess I show a certain amount of empathy at times, but also I play cranky old dads, you know, who, uh, <laughs> who you know, don't get along with their kids. And, but but it, that's true. I've done, uh, I have about 30, and I have a list in my file called All My Children, <laughs> and there are about 30 
people I've been the father of, including uh, um, um, Philip Michael uh, Philip uh, Seymour. Mm, Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman. He, he was 16. I played his father in a movie. I, I, I understand your own. I thought, your, I thought later, if I knew how famous he was going to be, I'd have been nicer to him. <laughs> I understand but, your own dad, though, was uh, was perhaps on the stoic side. He was. He was so much like the breaking away guy that he was always, you know, kind of. He was not a, a zinger guy because he didn't talk very much, but he was. Uh, he didn't have. He never smiled. You know, he was one of the hardworking guys in a factory. He used to come home and put his lunchbox down, and go out to his workshop. An hour later, they, uh, my mother would call him for dinner, but he, he spent very little time, as little time as he could with the, the wife or the kids. You know, he just uh, he worked hard and he went home and to sleep. I, I rely on him a lot when I do characters, especially if they're if they're not agreeable. Well, we have loved so many roles throughout your long career. Uh, we are so glad to see you continue to be working, taking on uh, great challenges out there. I know you you got a talented fam. Your, your wife is an awfully good writer as well. So we wish you a continued success and good health and really appreciate you making time for us this afternoon. Well, it's my pleasure. And if she only wrote one thing, she'd be famous. She wrote the musical Wicked. Right. That's, that's a pretty good start right there. <laughs> now she's working on the screenplay of Wicked, which will come out in a couple of years. Can't wait for that. Mr. Dooley, great yeah. to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Same here. It was fun listening to you. So much fun talking with Paul Dooley, who's had an amazing career and not over yet. He's still out there working at age 91. Our thanks to Paul. Thanks to the great Jimmy Webb. And thanks to you for joining us on Downtown Podcast. Tell your friends, subscribe, give us a good review if you like the show. If you don't, Keep it to yourself, please. Thank you very much. We remind you, we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance and Pineland Farms Dairy. See you next time on Downtown, the podcast.